All right, and there's the last one done. Hey, sweetheart. Oh, uh, uh, what's going on? You moved the bed? Yeah, come sit down. I need your help. I thought we were going to record. What are you wearing? Is that a cape? No, Christy, it's a, a, a cloak. Uh, we've got some black magic to do. Why are all your omnibuses spread around? Did you pour salt all over the carpet? Well, yeah, I needed a big pentagram. We have summoning to do. I bought you that Fantastic Four omnibus for your birthday. What are you going to do with it? It's going to be a worthy sacrifice, of course. Okay, start chanting with me. A stirred what? Amulet of right, sword of might, Captain Britain omnibus, enter my sight. Amulet of Wait, right, sword of might, are you Captain trying to get Britain the Captain Britain omnibus? Amulet of Can right, we just buy it? Might, we didn't need omnibus, to sacrifice the books. How did you even Amulet learn how to right, do this? Sword of might, can- it's too rare and out of print, Christy. It's got to be the black magic. It's the only way. I'm calling for some backup. Amulet of right, sword of might, Catherine okay. Omnibus. Okay, uh, what's going on? Chris is using the forces of darkness to try to summon the Captain Britain Omnibus. Oh, yeah, that one is really rare. Okay, yes, but I don't want him burning up his whole collection, mostly presents, I might add, just to get one book. I mean, that's fair. It's slated to be reprinted soon. Wait, what? Oh, hi, Nola. Hi, Chris. Uh, yeah, I was saying, uh, Marvel's recently heavily hinted that the Captain Britain omnibus is going to get a reprint. And as much as black magic is cool and all, uh, we're probably fine just waiting. Oh, yeah, that's great. Okay, okay, yeah, I'll stop. I mean, well, while you're all set up, how about we try to get the Walt Simons and Thor omnibus? Ah. No, 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 no. We've got a podcast to record. Nola, get in here, too. You heard her, Nola. It's time to talk about comics. Yes. I'm Christina Edelman. And I'm Chris Edelman. And this is Chris's On Infinite Earth. The podcast where nothing will ever be the same. Welcome, readers, to our finale episode of Inferno, our third of three parts. And we have a fabulous guest here with us today. We would like to welcome to the podcast the editor-in-chief of the Eisner Award-winning Women Write About Comics, contributor to Comics XF, published in Vulture recently. Welcome to the show, Nola Fow. Nola, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty all right. How about you? Uh, we're doing pretty good. That's good. It It is finally slightly warmer here than it has been. And I've got that finale feeling. You know, we're ready for, for lots of feathers and lights and dancing. Like, it's that kind of finale, right? Fade to black, uh, roll credits. <laughs> <laughs> is it that kind of finale? Are there feathers in this? You know, I don't think that was a costuming choice that anybody made, but I feel like it could have been. There's a lot of feathered hair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given the area you're working with, there's like somebody's definitely got some feathered hair going on. Like, that's probably as close as you're going to get. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Noah, I'm glad that you're, you're on to help us talk about Inferno because it is probably the most popular X-Men crossover. That might be slightly debatable, but I, I don't think I it's mean, that debatable. Like, the only reason that I could see another one being more popular is just, uh, you know, maybe, like, modern reach and knowledge. 
But even then, like, this was at the height of X-Men. They're only just now starting, like, comics as a whole are really only just now starting to get back to selling the way that they were, that X-Men was selling in the 80s. Yeah. Just gangbusters. Yep. It's always like, like we, so, so the, the three of us had a, had a fun, we're in a fun trivia, um, <laughs> deal the other, uh, a few weekends ago. And we had to name some comics amongst the top 10 selling. And we were like, Uncanny X-Men, it has to be, it has to be, it has to be. Cause it was like 84. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the 80s, yeah. N- Nola is absolutely correct. They were, mm-hmm. they were just gangbusters. They were selling like wild. Yeah. Trivia, things that you're very good at. Your uh, memory, in fact, I need to bring up the fact that it was 2019, October of 2019, where Nola tweeted that we should have them on the show when we talk about Inferno. Mm -hmm. And you, in fact, recalled this very tweet and just assumed that Nola knew (laughs) that she would be called upon to do this. Yeah. No? As a binding agreement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean... Like my my stance is the same now as it was then, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. But uh, I was still very <laughs> impressed that you actually remembered it because I usually don't remember what I tweeted last week. <laughs> I do, I always remember when people have have brought up if they want to be guests on the podcast, binding agreements in Chris's mind, and when <laughs> we and if and when we get to them, if that's that's just happening because if you tweeted about it, it's binding; it is law. Yep. Sorry, tweets can be used in a court of law. <laughs> Guests are fun because they make Christy do slightly more work in editing. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. It does take me like 30% more time, I think, to edit an episode with a guest. And see, I love guesting because it means that I never have to put any of the organizational work into recording. Oh, I just show up. (laughs) Always a guest or never a host. (laughs) That's the way to do it. (laughs) All right. Well, are we ready to get into summary, Christy? All right. Yeah. Let's get our summary going. Uncanny X-Men, number 242 and 243. Written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Mark Silvestri, inked by Dan Green and Hilary Barta, colored by Glennis Oliver, lettered by Tom Orzakowski, edited by Bob Harris and Mark Grunewald. Number 242. Wolverine kisses Jean to, uh, make sure it's her? It's gross. Anyway, this kind of breaks into X-Factor and the X-Men just beating the heck out of each other due to misunderstandings slash demonic influences. Also, Longshot and Dazzler just start making out in the middle of it, which is frankly incredible. Havoc is also mad at Cyclops for abandoning Maddie, which... fair! Nastier arrives with some demons, including Jean's parents, and makes Cyclops choose whether to save Jean or Maddie. He kind of had a way to save both, but Havoc got in the way and leaves with Maddie and Nastier. The teams still fight until Storm notices the Empire State Building becoming massive and demonic. Colossus tries to follow Maddie and Havoc inside, but the door slams shut behind them. Atop the tower, Maddie prepares to sacrifice baby Nathan as Nassir tries to hurry her along. The baby reaches out to Jean for help, which enrages Maddie. Storm and Jean are reunited as friends, which seems to serve to mend fences between the groups, just in time for Nastir to attack and be repelled by Storm, Jean, Archangel, and Rogue. Colossus, meanwhile, has made it to the top of the tower, where he is blown off by Havoc, only to be saved by Iceman. The teams put their heads together, literally, as Psylocke telepathically links with Jean, sharing the information of the X-Men's fight with the Techno-Organic Magus. 
A plan is formed, and Colossus and Wolverine are propelled to the top of the tower, with Archangel and Dazzler providing the assist. Storm and Bobby prove to be instrumental, though, and freeze the tower before shooting it with heat. This causes Nastier to explode. They all wonder why Manhattan is still demonic with Nastier defeated, but of course there's still the Goblin Queen, who stands triumphant after incapacitating Jean. X-Factor, issues 38 and 39, are both written by Louise Simonson, penciled by Walter Simonson, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Tom Vincent, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Bob Harris and Mark Gruenwald. Issue 38. Scott tries to get Maddie to just destroy him, since he's really the one at fault here, but she figures, eh, why not destroy them all? X-Factor and the X-Men leap into action trying to save babies, but they end up clobbering each other, still affected by the demonic presence in the world. Storm is still peeved that X-Factor seems to be mutant hunters, which they posed as early on. It's complicated. But Scott reminds Storm that Maddie was the one who was controlling the X-Men's news intake in Australia. Despite this, Maddie still manages to get Archangel Dazzler and Longshot on her side using some persuasive magic. But after some good inner turmoil, Archangel breaks free, saving Jean from Maddie. Cyclops and Havoc still scrap, not being able to hurt each other due to the nature of their powers, and Jean fights with Maddie over Nathan Christopher. Maddie encases the three of them in a force bubble before explaining her origin story to Jean. Jean tells Maddie about how she had the same thing happen to her, the phoenix stealing her template. Jean feels like Maddie being created is another time in her life that has been stolen from her. In the fray, Archangel accidentally nails Havoc with his flechettes and barely rescues the fallen X-Men. Warren is, of course, feeling some monstrous angst over it. Jean and Maddie figure out that Maddie got Jean's memories from the Phoenix after the Entity took them when creating a simulacrum of Jean. The X-Men try to break open the Force bubble with everyone but Havoc helping. He is only convinced when he's told that it might be the best way to help Madeline. Maddie figures out that she was put in Alaska by Mr. Sinister in his ploy to get Nathan Christopher. She feels abandoned and Jean tells her that Cyclops tried to go back to them only to find them gone. Sinister, of course. She explains the rest of how they got here to Jean, all while the X-Men try to break open the bubble. Psylocke talks to a depressed Longshot, trying to get him to help them with his luck. He reveals the weak spot of the bubble, and the X-Men pour it on. As the bubble collapses, Jean tries to help Maddie, saying they could offer her a place of refuge. Madeline refuses and tries to destroy herself, Nathan, and everyone else on a massive funeral pyre. Jean stops this by integrating Maddie and the piece of the phoenix inside of Maddie into herself, becoming all of them. This causes the demons to vanish and everything to revert back to normal. As Jean cradles the lifeless body of Maddie, they vow to make the architect of this pay. It's time to pay a visit to Mr. Sinister. Uncanny X-Men number 243. Jean is going through periods of mental anguish wherein her comrades cannot speak with her. Psylocke mindlinks with her, taking Cyclops, Wolverine, and Storm into the astral plane where they see Jean and Maddie's memories, but also images of Sinister. He is smashing bits of Jean and Maddie's memories and will destroy all of them if not stopped. The crew tries to convince Maddie in Jean's mind now to help them, and while she doesn't want to at first, she doesn't want to be controlled by Sinister, and so Jean and her cast him out. While Longshot and Beast hang out on ship, X-Factor's base, making sure Jean's now non-demonic 
Black parents are safe, Jean, Psylocke, Wolverine, Archangel, Storm, and Cyclops head to Professor Xavier's abandoned mansion, where Sinister has possibly taken up roost. Colossus, Iceman, Havoc, and Dazzler travel to the mansion through the Morlock tunnels when suddenly Blockbuster of the Marauders attacks. Simultaneously, Malice and Sabretooth attack the group in the mansion. They scrap for a while until Malice gets nabbed. Jean prepares to rip the Malice personality out of Polaris, which Malice says will kill them both. But... The entire place explodes with the fate of the X-Men unknown as Mr. Sinister enters, grabbing an unconscious Jean Grey as Malice chastises him for not warning her. But standing against them, the lone standing X-Man, Longshot. X-Factor number 39. Longshot stands alone against Malice and Sinister, managing to fight them off in time for Beast and Cyclops to give the assist. Cyclops tries to turn his eyes on Sinister, but they don't work against the villain. Rogue tries to grab Sinister, but his personality takes over her body, leaving her incapacitated. Cyclops realizes that after his incident with his powers manifesting, he wasn't in a real coma for a year, but instead was nabbed by Sinister. Havoc fires his blast at Sinister, only to be grabbed by Malice's metallic powers, crushing him and Colossus. Sinister continues to taunt Scott, explaining how no amount of conditioning could help Scott control his powers. And also explained that he created Madeline to drive Cyclops away from the X-Men. The rest of the crew, through Psylocke telepathy, devises a plan in which they'll all distract Sinister and Malice while Havoc will handle Cyclops. Sinister is still whipping their butts, but Iceman encases him in a freezing prison while Dazzler and Beast manage to free Havoc. Wolverine confronts the newly arrived Sabretooth, felling him in one blow. Havoc taunts Scott, egging him on about getting them in this mess and shooting him with his plasma blasts, which only serves to power Cyclops up. Longshot tries to throw a knife at Sinister, but it bounces off a shield, and Jean takes a blast meant for the lucky hero. Longshot is not having a good mental health day. Finally, as Sinister kisses Jean... Yuck. Yuck. Cyclops finally snaps, using his overcharged powers to blow Sinister to smithereens. In the last couple pages of this story, the teams part ways, deciding they all have different roles to play. Alright, so how do we feel about this finale of Inferno? There weren't enough feathers for my taste, but I did really (laughs) enjoy it. Although... Let me tell you, it felt like felt like three finales. We had so many like big bads to overcome. I was like, "All right, we did it." Wait, nope, there's more. Nope, oh, again. I don't want to call it the Return of the King because Return of the King's endings are not about overcoming lots of bad guys, but it is like it is like an overcoming in stages. And it's funny how the X Men and X Factor in this case, since they are they are kind of teamed up, are like. All right, we've we've beaten X. Why are there still demons? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, granted, once they once they defeat Maddie, the demons are gone. Yes. Yes. But that's second defeat. They have to defeat defeat Nasir. Yeah. Then they defeat Maddie. Mm-hmm. Defeat. Absorb. Like Jean, like absorbs Maddie. Jean Jean kind of Jean kind of has a Maddie snack. Yeah. Maddie snack. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that Maddie Snack is my favorite 70s movie where everybody's playing golf. You're going to have to give me more here. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> it rhymes with Caddyshack. Yeah, Chris was making a Caddyshack reference. Oh, is that an Adam Sandler one? No, you're thinking Happy Gilmore. <laughs> no, Caddyshack is uh, John Candy and uh, what, Chevy Chase. 
Yeah, okay. that's true. I was like, Adam Sandler didn't make movies in the 70s. I don't understand. <laughs> no, because he was don't like a child. Don't assume that I know things. <laughs> Chris's jokes that I don't understand just because I have a lack of, like, pop culture reference are my favorite. But I'm Nola, s- your take on the ending of Inferno. We we already covered, like, the, the New Mutants sort of wrap-up. So we're, like on its own are these what how how do these feel for you so as an ending um i like that chris brought up the return of the kings reference because it does feel that way in the sense of they're just like multiple final acts but you know because it's a comic book it doesn't take three hours to get through those so it's not so (laughs) bad fair (laughs) but like i don't know i mean inferno's my favorite x-men event of all time so i'm biased but I think it's great. I mean, I don't think that liking something makes you biased. Like, if you wrote it and liked it, I think <laughs> that would make you biased. But as far as I know, you didn't You didn't write Inferno. We did read the credits. Nola Fowl was not in the credits <laughs> of any of these issues. So I think you're okay. I mean, we can always circle back around to the Black Magic and change that. <laughs> it's time to edit the past. <laughs> no, I mean, like, like I'm, I'm, when I say I'm biased, I mean that, like, I am willing to forgive a lot in this event even you know even the stuff that's not so great because i just love it it's just mm-hmm. it's it's part of the first uh collection of single issues that i of x-men that i ever owned as a kid this was the stuff that i just reread over and over and over again i love when we hear that from guests like we like this is the thing they wanted to talk about because we always hear like that i had these as a kid or like you remember with everett and like just that era was like, oh of gen of Gen X yeah I had some Gen X as a kid but I didn't like my so uh, no I so I guess I guess no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> I guess childhood nostalgia can be considered a bias uh, a yeah, little bit a little I guess bit. a little bit. I don't I mean but you're not alone like there are people who will read the original 1985 Secret Wars and be like this isn't good but I loved it as a kid right but everybody's like. Inferno was good. It's good. It's still good. It will remain good. Yes. Reading this for the first time felt like finally like understanding and like having light bulb click about all of these things that friends that I know that are like so much bigger into X-Men than I am, like all of their thoughts and opinions and discourse. It was just like, oh, it, click. There we go. This makes sense. I I understand all of these dynamics and their loves of certain characters that I didn't necessarily hold. I'm like, oh, this all makes sense now. Christy's like, why do all my girlfriends love demon queens? Oh. <laughs> and I, the, just even like the Alex and Maddie stuff, I was like, oh, okay. Like that made everything, um, reading everything in Hellions that much more poignant. Yeah. It's funny because I forgot that Alex wasn't completely like duped by her. He w- in a way, he had a lot of agency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, for some reason, I completely forgot that yeah. until I reread this. It's a big element. He knows that she's sliding on this moral scale. He knows it, and he chooses to go along. Right. And, it, like, I think that he's influenced somewhat because she was walking him through magical sequences and dreams and stuff. And I think you covered that stuff in, in one of the earlier episodes. But he still has choice to make, and he makes that choice. And the choice is really admirable at first, and it becomes more and more suspect as it's like, oh, she's going to kill her kid. And that 
that to me was like the real big hang up. Like, I feel like any time that I've read about Maddie in like preparing for an episode or something, or just wanting to know a little bit more about X, like X Men, her wanting to sacrifice you know, Cable Nathan is just like this tiny little footnote, and I'm like, no, that that's a big deal. Well, I think if she didn't do that, it would be hard to call her a villain because she's so sympathetic otherwise. Yeah. And I like that. Like, that's the thing, because, you know, she wasn't created with the intention of Inferno happening. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, she was created because Claremont wanted Cyclops to retire from the X-Men. He, you know, he up until basically this event. Claremont's whole deal was moving the X-Men board in more or less real time. And his intention was for Cyclops to leave the team and to retire because he'd been at it for a few years by this point and he was getting kind of worn down and he was, you know, he was carrying a lot and Gene had died and Claremont was basically trying to give Scott a happy ending, you know, like, Hey, here's this woman who reminds you a lot of Gene, but who isn't Gene. And here is a happy life that you can have with her. And, you know, Marvel editorial was like, nah, 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 <laughs> nah, nah. Um, and because, you know, aside from Wolverine at the time, Cyclops was like the, the, the main flagship character. Um, mm -hmm. and Marvel editorial was absolutely not going to let that go. So that's how all of this came about. So what you're saying is Cyclops isn't a bad guy. He's just written that way. I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying, but also Cyclops sucks. And I say that as like, Cyclops is like my favorite X-Man, but I will, fl I will fully admit he sucks. Yeah, he, he, he does suck. I, I have never paid more for art than I have for a picture of him drawn by Neil Adams. And I'm still like, yeah, this guy just. Yeah. But like, uh, he's fun to read about. It's, it's fun to read about. And like, the thing about him is he is, and, and this event largely defines that for him. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing that kind of comes up before this, but it's never quite so clearly defined as this event. He is a person who essentially had his adult outlook on life shaped by Charles Xavier, which means that he is a mutant and an X-Man first for any. And when you ever, whenever you put him in a position where he has to choose between that and something else, he's going to choose being an X-Man because it is so ingrained in him at this point that it is his default stance. And that's not always the right choice for him to make, but it's always the one that he's going to make. And when he does, he's always going to live with the consequences. In this case, the consequences are, oh, hey, I guess I'm leaving my wife and child to go hang out with my high school sweetheart superhero team again. It's fine, I guess. Oh, now my, now my wife is a demon queen. Oops. Did I do that? Imagining Cyclops as, as Urkel in this is is a whole bunch instead of <laughs> you know just Urkel just with ruby quartz in the in the lenses instead. Yeah, well, and then you you get the the sort of deeper Cyclops thing where even before he was an X Man, his life was also defined by somebody else. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Like what was it? A whole year of his life? Well, his entire Lost? like childhood post the the plane crash by someone sinister. <laughs> Someone left-handed. I mean, so it, it's a whole lot of trauma, and trauma can explain a lot. Yep. I don't know how much it can excuse, 
Yeah. Oh yeah, and 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 like that's that's kind of the crux of my analysis here. So I'm never going to excuse his choices, but like I get why he makes them, and his character makes a very concrete amount of sense to me well and like i don't want to read about people making good choices all the time that's not interesting (laughs) (laughs) i mean people live messy lives so why wouldn't you want to read i mean you want to read about these sweet stories where everything just is everybody makes makes good choices and we like mess yeah i love mess (laughs) yep and besides you know like i mean he's he's not even the worst member of the original five so (laughs) it's true oh just remembering the panel of beast with his arms around i don't even remember was it rogue Rogue and dazzler and like i don't i don't want to remember anymore you have to keep in mind at this point beast had not done it very much wrong yeah he was pretty okay at this point yeah he hadn't done any genocides yet no Um, not a single one this is when he was still like in his very uh ebullient stage he was funny he cracked jokes all the time and he was super smart and he bounced around and like he was he wasn't a bad character right this version of beast the worst i could see him doing is you know maybe he's that guy who has a couple too many at the bar and and is a little overly friendly but in like a non-threatening way you know like you're just Mm -hmm. like come on dude calm down a little and i definitely got that sense like reading the early x-factor stuff I was like, oh, I, I, I kind of like Beast here. Well, so, like, when I watched the cartoon when I was a kid, he was this guy. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, sh- doesn't everybody love this guy? And then, you know, like, reading a lot later and going, oh, he's done a lot of a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was largely after that where that sort of stuff was defined. But, yeah, like, his big inner turmoil was, I I look like a blue guy now, and the, the, the woman that I was dating is taken aback by it. Like, that's his whole, like... <laughs> Big yep. conflict right now. <laughs> yep. And I think I think that part of the reason that they had to find a, a better direction for him was like he's doing this whole thing on X Factor, where anytime he does this, Warren's like, "Oh yeah, I also look like a blue guy and scary and scare my girlfriends, but also I have metal wings that are always trying to kill people." Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> had to give him a little more pathos. I don't think I realized how scary and somewhat grotesque Angel looked as as Archangel. Like in the the fit, like I well, feel like that, his nose that gets was, like, changed later by when Maddie's demonic influence takes him over. He starts to kind of look more demonic, and he gets yeah. like he's like oh. razor rose in his okay, head. Okay, thank yeah. goodness. I was like, because he, he no, he's generally pretty handsome, just like a scary blue man. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah, and I was and it's very the, the wings that are like really scary. They because yeah. he can like chop people in half with them and stuff. Okay, there were feathers. There were feathers. Well, there were flechettes. There were flechettes. <laughs> How does he fly with them? Shut up! It doesn't matter. Shiny, scary feathers. As we know, Warren is a dinosaur. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I'm just imagining Warren is a dinosaur for Mario imagination. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. Okay. We're going, we're going there. I, like, I feel like Matt, Maddie is, like, probably the most sympathetic villain that the X-Men have at this point. I guess, like, they, they, they're, like, the, the, they're the team that has the sympathetic villains. All the Avengers villains are, like, weird and megalom- megalomaniacal, and it's hard to feel bad for them. But, like, you get, like, Magneto and Emma and Maddie. Sorry, sorry. 
the who villains the, the who villains <laughs> no the the villains for who you know the the team that has the the very popular movies apparently <laughs> oh you mean the x men villains the avengers <laughs> you know that. Does this mean that all the Avengers villains are X-Men allies, or is that not quite how it works? Uh, like, is King the Conqueror Is the enemy of the enemy their friend? Probably. Not usually. No. I don't think King, so. King the Conqueror is, is not an X-Men friend. Right. I mean, sometimes he is, because, like, there's a version of Kang that's a young Avenger. That's true. Man, that, it's weird when they were trying to push the young Avengers. I kind of love them all, though, so. But I think Gene has a lot of interesting stuff in this. This is maybe one of the more interesting Gene stories, because unfortunately, Gene has this, like, side effect of, of, of coming from the Silver Age and just being written as the girl. And even, like, a lot of the really, like, strong work with her has a lot of trouble transcending the fact that her basic, like, character is, like, a good person. She's, like, she is a, she is a good woman. And in this, she has to be, like, the, like, I am sick of the fact that everybody tries to take things from me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually one of my favorite things about, uh, about this. First off, like Gene and Maddie both get just amazing character work and it's a really good meta commentary on the way that societally we treat women. Mm -hmm. But I love the overall arc of Gene being basically the X-Men's version of, of Sue Storm in. This, the lead in the Lee Kirby case, you know, she was just the girl. Yeah, Stan Lee could did it three times. Yes, it was it was the Wasp, it was Sue Storm, and it was Jean Grey, and they were three of the same person. Yes. Hey, Neapolitan though. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> um, it says some things about ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> they are delicious. They sure are. Claremont juiced her up once already. You know, he he made her the Phoenix, and it was, you know, his first real women in power act, which is a thing that he just goes back to over and over again, which, you know, great. I'm here for that. So they they do that, and then, like, there's the art error where she accidentally eats a planet, by which I mean, you know, clearly it wasn't accidental on page, but the fact that the planet was populated was accidental, because I guess the script called for it not to be originally so they're like oh oh that's that's bad we gotta do something about that okay i did not know this is a story of it being accidental oh yeah yes <laughs> yeah um so it, like the the when sh there's a like when when gene is doing her full phoenix thing there's like a star she eats uh-huh the the planet orbiting that star is supposed to not be inhabited and i oh. think it might even be that the narration like, specifically says something to that effect. It's been a while since I've read those issues. But then Byrne, who was drawing X-Men at the time, specifically drew little alien broccoli people the on broccoli this planet. The broccoli people. Yeah, yes. I know the broccoli people. You know of the, of the, bro the broccoli <laughs> And Jean got to know those broccoli people too, largely in the same way that she got to know Madeline in this crossover here, uh, by consuming them. <laughs> Gene hungry. <laughs> so the inclusion of the broccoli people was not intentional. Right. Not on Claremont's part. It was intentional on John Byrne's part. Yes. So just miscommunication. Well, also like who uh, John Byrne, I don't like him. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's <laughs> bad he's, choices. He's not great. So that un like that, that made Gene, what is, what's the term for, for a person who commits genocide, a genocider? 
Yeah. She she was she was in the eyes of editorial a bad person. Yeah. Irredeemable. <laughs> yes. She was yeah. considered irredeemably evil, which is another meta commentary in its own right, because again, how many male X-Men have committed genocides? Right. I was like, why does Jean well, get to do a genocide but not why is it not okay for Gene to do genocide, and why is it okay for, for Hank to do genocides? That's true. This is different editorial. Yes, some of this is timelines. Some of, you know, some of this is standards back then versus standards now. But but that's not to say the point doesn't. Stand. Yeah, like, yeah, and and like that's that's a whole separate conversation to have. So she has to die. Decrees editorial. So she dies, and. Then it's Kurt Busiek who comes up with the idea of, oh, no, that wasn't actually Gene. That was the Phoenix Force impersonating Gene. And Gene was secretly alive in stasis in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay this whole time. Which is Which in is New York. Which is not in Jamaica, as we've discussed before. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was in Jamaica. And then I was like, oh, it's New York. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell I've never been there. So... All of a sudden, she's back and she's an adult. And that's how the run-up to this event starts because Scott finds out Mm -hmm. and goes back to X-Factor. And Madeline's like, you have a wife and child, dude. What is your problem? He's like, my problem is editorial. (laughs) And Scott doesn't tell Jean this. And then she finds out and she's like, Scott, you have a wife and child. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. God, there's so many issues of him just being like inner turmoil. <laughs> oh yeah, like it goes on. It goes on for a few years because yeah. <laughs> Scott introduces the X Men or introduces Madeline to the X Men in 173, uh-huh. I think, uh, two or three. Because like, as I've said elsewhere, 173 is my favorite X Men issue of all time. So like, so and then this is. This is what almost a full hundred issues later. This is two forty-two, two forty-three. So seventy issues later. Talk about end. delaying the consequences of your actions. Yeah. Well, it's like that was that was this that was the storylines that he, that Claremont was allowed. It is in in the eighties. It was wonderful because he could tell these long stories. But then yeah. when he eventually he he fully expected to never be off these books. Mm-hmm. He apparently would talk in interviews like he expected to be writing them five years later all the time. So unfortunately, it meant that when he left, there were these like weird things that other people picked up and like did these strange things with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he always had these long running threads going, assuming that he would be on these books forever. Mm-hmm. Right. But, I mean, there, there's something to be said for making yourself like indispensable in your position. And yeah, until you're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, like, the, even like the long form storytelling eventually became kind of passe, and it, it's it's to the point now where people are wondering like why there's things in this current era that haven't already paid off. Yeah, and it's funny because it's they're so used to it. Yeah, and then you, like, you know you've got you've got those of us who are like who have read all this old stuff, and we're like, oh wait, no, I see what they're doing here. This is actual setup. This is a plot thread that's going to be picked up later. <laughs> It's not just going to end at the end of the issue. <laughs> it's it's great. Like, like trade. And, writing and like, about Marauders with um, Vishal on CXF, um, and just the 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 villains that were introduced early on in the storyline. We're on like issue eighteen, and these villains were introduced in like issue four. And it's like Vishal's like, I thought this was going to wrap up, and I was like, I don't, I don't know. There's yeah. We we could have we could have them around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I uh, like I'm I'm dealing with a similar thing because I'm writing about X Force for Black, 
you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's the, the villains that popped up in the first issue of X-Force are once again popping up in X-Force 17. Mm-hmm. Um, cause they, like, they still haven't been properly dealt with. They've like, they've been barely dealt with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause then, you know, Ten of Swords happened. So like, there's all this stuff just hanging over that book right now to the point where like, like I almost get anxious when I think too much about it. Like as a, as a <laughs> reader and as a fan, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. I, I, I need some resolution here. Back to, back to what I was saying. Uh, so Jean goes through this whole thing where suddenly she's alive and an adult. And it's been a few years because again, Claremont is doing that more or less real time thing. Um, so the team that she left is not the same team she comes back to and everyone has mourned her and said goodbye to her. And she has to deal with this idea that, you know, she gets a second lease on life. Right. Like, I want to stress that Jean was fully committed to dying when she was go, when the, when the ship was going down over Jamaica Bay. It's, it's in like an issue of X-Men classic. Uh, It's one of those backup stories, but like, there's a whole conversation she has with the Phoenix Force. And it is it's poignant and it's beautiful and it's sad. But literally, like as as the Phoenix Force is offering this bargain to her, basically. The art just has her body breaking down under advanced radiation, like very fast. And by the time she accepts the bargain, she's almost a skeleton. Like and and it's got to be like wild to to make that choice and commit yourself to that path and accept your death. And then to suddenly be hale and hardy and running around in spandex again. Right. And then they, they, and then also without her telepathy for the most part for a bit. Yeah. God, that was weird. They yeah. Wanted, they really wanted this to just be cla- like classic X-Men again. Yeah. So they even made beast like back to normal for a little bit. So, so then, so then this whole event picks up and suddenly she's, you know, everyone is looking at her because they're all like just get just getting used to the fact that she's alive again. And for her, she's basically been unconscious this whole time. Like she's got no awareness of the time that she lost, really. Mm-hmm. So for her, it's like, oh yeah, that was last Saturday. And for them, it's like, no, that was like five years ago. Like Jean is basically the post snap people in the MCU. Right. Yeah. Like like that's kind of her whole thing at this point. And so everyone is kind of wants to treat her like she's this fragile thing, but she's Jean Grey. And I think a lot of this is about metatextually Chris Claremont reminding people of who Jean Grey is and who she was under his pen and setting a standard for her going forward. And she looks pretty good in this. Not just like, I don't just mean like, oh, she's looking good, but like, Chrissy's like Mark Silvestri and Walt Simonson, loving this work. <laughs> it it gave a lot to to Jean and set her up as like a person with agency, and it was nice. Yeah, right. Do we want to get into Twitter questions? We have an awful lot, Nola. Times. You are popular, very popular. Oh yeah, that's right. All right, well the time has come. Let's go ahead and get into those those Twitter questions. All right, our first one comes from at Darth Oni, the Duck Knight. Hello, Chris's. Two questions for you. Who is the most unnecessarily thirsty character in Inferno? Hmm. This is implying that the thirst is unnecessary. Sinister. That, I don't know. Is that unnecessary? I I didn't like it. I think 
Dazzler was. She was like mm-hmm. very like jealous in like a thirsty way, and then she and Longshot just make out, and she but- like barely wants to do anything, and I, I kind of respect it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so are you saying it's unnecessary or very necessary? Because I I'm, I respect the unnecessary nature of it. Oh, okay, yeah. all right, all right. And I mean, like you know, it wasn't entirely her fault. Like she was being affected by Inferno, so like right. And it, Chris Claremont has to make things that are evil also sexy at the same yeah. time. Yeah. If they're evil, they're sexy. That's just that's just <laughs> X Men. That is just X Men. And the the second question from uh, Darthoni: What are your thoughts on the number of characters that got messed up just to get Scott and Jean together, including Scott? I feel like this entire crossover is Chris Claremont just being incredibly mad that editorial just messes with him. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's this like they might as well have called it malicious compliance. The miniseries, <laughs> right? Like, fine, I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> no one's going to be happy. Right. So, but, I mean, basically everybody got messed up. Yeah. I think I think this made sense, like, as far as what he wanted to do with Ilyana at some point. Yeah. Yes. Like, I, I Honestly, I, I feel like if any, I, I feel like if, if anyone got messed up the worst, it's, it's, it's Ilyana. Right. Well, because at this point, at the end of it, she's a she's a child. I know other things happen going forward, but like doesn't set her up to be in a great place. I but you you kind of wonder how much of like his original plan was to get Ilyana eventually to have to confront this kind of nature of herself. Whereas, like you you know that when he made Madeline Pryor, he did not want to make Madeline Pryor into an evil person. Eventually, yeah. Whereas his his conception of Ilyana is that she's evil. He said this in interviews. <laughs> Like, he's gone on the record with this. <laughs> he's gone on the record in, like, a weird way. Where people are like, yeah. I really like the character of Ilyana. He's like, wow, it's weird that you like a, an irredeemably evil character. Like, you made her a protagonist, Chris. Like, you like, had a whole miniseries about her where we feel bad for her. What do you want from us? Like, Chris, Chris, have you read Unca- Have you read your own run of Uncanny X-Men? Because <laughs> making us like the irredeemably evil characters is basically your whole MO. <laughs> All you know how to do. <laughs> All right. At Asimov underscore fangirl asks two questions. The first of which is, which artistic depiction of possessed New York did you enjoy the most? I so while I don't think that I, I don't like the way that he 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 portrayed most of the New Mutants. I loved Brett Blevins' weird cartoony New York. Where the buildings are like Every, demonic his faces, and like yes. Ilyana went to like the weird like barber shop and had like a almost like a barber of Seville sort of moment where they're also yeah. like kill me, <laughs> kill me with your sword, barber of evil. Oh, <laughs> the barber of evil. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast meets Limbo. <laughs> yeah, kinda. Yeah, it was. It's uncomfy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the second question, if you started to get corrupted like Maddie or the X-Men, what would be your outfit? My goodness. What would we wear if we were evil? Like, I, I already basically dress in black most of the time anyway. <laughs> so really, I mean, I'm just going to, like, I'm just going to go with the tried and true. Like, like, like Maddie did, like Havoc did, like Storm did, you know? You know, just tear some rips in that thing and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Me? Like... Like some leather or like latex. Like I, I think the material that I would wear would be what would change. We're not talking like soft, like cottons anymore. Right. 
Like, see, whereas I, so I've always conceived if there was an exact opposite of Chris, I would be a lawyer who was who worked for big oil companies trying to get around like environmental protection. So you would just wear a really nice suit. Yeah, but the but the undershirt would be red. Ooh, it's an interest. Interesting choice. You don't wear red. No. So it, that really makes sense. I think I would also have to be like much paler and maybe like slightly like my skin tone would have to not be quite as peachy. <laughs> and, and, and all of your smiles would be slightly too big. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a lot of teeth. Like I'd maybe have like 40 teeth. You'd have like <laughs> a real thank you for smoking vibe. Yeah. So yeah. I think even less likable. Fair. I think you're still supposed to kind of like Aaron Eckhart and, and thank you for smoking. Fair. Adam Rack at Arthur Stacy asks, how could Inferno have ended without completely character assassinating Maddie? I mean, do we have time for that? Because like I could go on I could go on about that question alone for like an hour. I mean, I, I think it it's it's hard to empathize with, with her wanting to kill her own child. Even though she explains it in a in, mm-hmm. in a way that like makes sense in her own head, I feel like if when they would have defeated Nastier, some sort of hold over Maddie would have been broken and like coming to like sort of a sense coming to senses sort of thing. Like we could forgive her for all of that pretty easily. I mean, a lot of people well, already forgive her for that. Then that takes away some of her agency. It, it, makes it does. Her like a pawn. But we're we're talking about like character assassination here. What would what? What I would have liked to have seen, um, and this is, you know, some of this is with the benefit of hindsight, but what I would have liked to have seen is at the, at the point when Maddie is made aware of the details surrounding her creation as a clone, um, and the details surrounding the way that she was inserted into Scott Summer's life, uh, when she's made aware of these things, um, I would have liked, I would have, I would have liked it if she, had become sort of more meta aware of the, the nature of her role in things like, because it felt like Claremont was kind of leaning into this. Oh, so you need me to be a villain. Well, fine. Then I'm going to be a villain. Um, it felt like she, it, it felt like when he was writing her, he was kind of leaning into that. And, and that is a conception of her that I've always kind of had. And it's, it's one that was strengthened by, Subsequent appearances, especially in Hellions these days, mm-hmm. uh, that that speech she gives about how everybody left her and everybody forgot her. Um, that's it was it, it hit hard because it very much felt like during this event, during Inferno, she stopped being a character and started being a plot device. And I would have enjoyed it if she had leaned into that more consciously, you know. If if her motivation for wanting to kill Nathan was, you know, more explicitly, well, if I'm not real, then he's a product of me and he's not real either. Mm. And I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not, uh, not saying that her motivation would be forgivable in that case, but um, I feel like it would have strengthened her arc and her angle in this um, to say nothing of the fact that like he then grows up to have his own clone issues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Like I don't know, like I 
I'm coming up with ideas for for Madeline stories, and I don't want to talk about them now because what if I want to pitch them one day? What if you want to pitch them? True. Yeah. Stop <laughs> talking. Stop talking. Next question. <laughs> Is the problem with Inferno's general motif the reliance on its Ghostbusters-y living objects, or the cartoony way they're depicted? I consider neither of these things a problem. Yeah. It, yeah, they're not problems. You, nope. Any problems with Inferno's general motif? I really no. Like Inferno's it. general motif leads to one of my favorite comic book scenes of all time. Which is the Daredevil tie-in issue where Daredevil gets beat up by a vacuum. <laughs> All right. Well, that leads into our next question at Daniel P. Grote asking, would the X-Men have done a better job fighting that vacuum that whooped Daredevil? <laughs> Probably. I have not read this Daredevil tie-in and I am having serious regrets right now. It's an innocenti written tie-in where Daredevil has a lot of inner turmoil and a Hoover vacuum or whatever is beating the ever-living crap out of him. <laughs> so I feel like, I feel like whether the X-Men would do better depends on the x-men because story-wise alex and scott are both uh very similar to daredevil in pathological style yeah which is you know they love to to feel angst and they love to sort of mire themselves in their own regrets and the story loves to punish them too so i feel like it probably would go a similar way but depending on other x-men like Wolverine probably wouldn't have trouble with an evil vacuum. <laughs> Just chop, chop, chop. <laughs> I love how Wolverine has troubles with basically nobody in this. Uh-huh. He just people just keep piling stuff on him, and then he's like, "I'm healed again. I'm gonna rip, I'm gonna rip somebody else to bits." <laughs> this is the height of his popularity and the height of his power. Because God, no, you could almost make a case for in like if like this era. Mm-hmm. Uh, being the start of his healing factor getting like supercharged well right because this is this is where it starts to become like slightly worn Mm -hmm. and then they're like let's never actually think about that again (laughs) yeah because it it always took him a little while to heal beforehand you know he healed fast but but it wasn't instantaneous it was like you know instead of a cut taking two weeks to heal it might take two hours yeah and then it progressed to the point where it was like it would take two seconds yeah all right our next question comes from at drew underscore gy it seems like a lot of x-men stories are really comic book science-based outer space genetics and giant robots inferno is awesome and beloved but seems like one of the only big mystical arcs where do x-men work best sci-fi dystopian or mystical adventures I mean, I don't want to argue with you, but this is an event that has an evil geneticist cloning people. <laughs> it is a little bit of both. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. I, and we have the, the, the techno-organic virus, like, yeah. infecting last year. That yeah. was, like, that was such a synthesis of, like, Claremont doing both. I'm going to be honest. In general, mostly... This notwithstanding, I don't love X-Men and magic. I, so how do you feel about Excalibur, though? Choose your words carefully, Christopher. I do like Excalibur. <laughs> I don't always like it when X-Men do demon stuff. I don't know. I'm trying to think. I, th- I think there's there's ways to do it. It's always weird to me when an X-Men learns magic and then they just have magic. and it Because, and, like, the first character who did it was Ileana and it became such a it was like a big part of her it was like a big deal and then a bunch of other people have done the same thing was mm. was Ileana before Amanda Sefton no but- <laughs> Chris admitting that readers if you didn't know Nola is always right so having her on this podcast with Chris is a lot of fun for me but Amanda I don't know I mean Amanda was definitely not like 
like as integral to the story. Although I love Amanda Sefton, I have a weird soft spot for Nightcrawler's weird, weird home situation. Okay, Chris, but we need to get back to your criticizing X Men and magic. Well, it's just because I love the sci-fi <laughs> dystopia so much. If you had to like make me pick, so I guess it's true. Appearance-wise, magic was a- uh, Ileana was actually first. Um, she was a small child in Colossus's origin story. In, in Giant, Giant Size, Size. X-Men number one, yes. Uh, uh. Amanda Sefton did not take long to appear. She showed up in X Uncanny 98, and I think Claremont took over with 94. Yeah, and I, I, I swear her first appearance is literally with Nightcrawler in, in like, I don't know if it's in the hot tub or if that's later, but you don't know she's magic for a while. It's just it, until that, that random... Annual. I'm sorry. Did you say her first appearance is in a hot tub? It might not. That might not be the very first <laughs> appearance, but it happens really early on. Yeah, and then there's the uh, the scene of Kurt laying on a couch with a a doll of himself in uh, conveniently placed. Wait, is this a a, a like a Bamf doll? Yeah, like, yeah. A Bamf doll. Yeah, he's got a Bamf doll, like in, conveniently in placed. Yeah, yeah. I need a Bamf doll. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get you one. They're hard to find. <laughs> All right, so yeah, I, it's hard though because like X Men does them all pretty well. Like I can't complain. Yeah, I just I'm such a dystopia fan, but even that's like over uh, overdone at this point. I say it's overdone. I don't know. I really like the dystopia stuff in Powers. Of it 10. doesn't matter well, to me. I don't understand it anyway. Either way. Well, and and you know, there's that. <laughs> is I think it's is it Arthur C. Clarke who had the quote about any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. True. I've always kind of thought about it like that story-wise. So, like, whether it's magic or whether it's science, it, it is the thing that does what is needed to get the story where the writer wants it to be. It's a thing beyond my comprehension that I can just say, yes, that makes this happen. Yeah, and, you know, as long as we don't end up with a Kulan Gath arc, it's fine. <sighs> I'm glad that no- Nola and I agree with the Kulan Gath arc. Which is, I, st- I stopped reading Uncanny X-Men, read all of Saga of Swamp Thing, and went, okay, I guess I can come back to this now. <laughs> yeah, it is it is such a dry, boring arc. It is ridiculous. <laughs> and it's double-sized! Yes. All right, the next question is from at Greg Packton, who asks, If all the household appliances in your home were possessed by demons and became little demon creatures, which one would you want to stay that way so you could keep it as a pet? I'm going to go, Christy, with the George Foreman grill that we have. Oh, they're an old one. Yeah, that thing's... It's it's it's, 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 our, it's our old faithful kitchen appliance. Yeah. If it goes, I feel like I'm just going to flip our cast iron around and start grilling stuff on the on the griddle. It's like that and the toaster that have hung in for the longest. Yep. Let me tell you, I want I want my brave little toaster. That's what I want. <laughs> a video that, or a movie that traumatized us all as children. <laughs> Nola, what, what appliance would you want to keep? All of them. <laughs> Nola wants all the demon appliances. I I am like worried if if I had a, a demonic mixer, it wouldn't want me to put attachments on it, and I'd be like, "It's time to make pasta." And I'd be like, "No, I want to make ice cream." Have you turned our mixer into our two year old? <laughs> Chris is worried that his mixer is going to de- develop attachment issues. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> it had to happen at least once. <laughs> Our next question comes from at trans underscore rage. What part of Maddie's character do you think is the most frequently misunderstood or neglected by other readers or creators? Hi, Danny. I I know that you're targeting me with this question. True. (laughs) God, 
all of it. Maddie had a real bad time from this event until Hellions, basically. Yeah, she was brought back in, I think the most recently before this, in that, in that, that Brian Wood. Ugh. How the, how did Brian Wood get the, get the, title that was the all-female x-men run until g willow wilson took it over but he he brought back Mad- madeline Pryor and then was like i'm gonna do nothing all right yeah there we go yeah he, he well he brought her back he brought back her consciousness but not her body and then he put her in another woman's body and then like while she was in this other woman's body she got a die job and as I'm far as a it, really bad face right now. Yeah, like as far as anyone was concerned, it. she was as far as anyone was concerned, she was just Maddie. Because you know, characters' faces change as artists take over, and so like, how were you supposed to know that this wasn't just Maddie? Why do they, why do people need to be that complicated with things? Yeah, it's- yeah, and like it's it's very it's very notable that like when they decided to do that when I say when they when when he, when he when Brian Wood decided to do that, he built it on women preying on and using other women and you know every time that she's been depicted since inferno it's always been with that kind of like even even in in hellions although with hellions like i'll 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 give it to her a little bit more because hellions is much more a direct address of this issue but she maddie never gets to stop being the goblin queen now maddie never gets to stop wearing black tattered robes and you know vamping around basically everyone else got to put that away i was hoping at the end of that hellions storyline we would get some resolution and it is still possible yeah uh and i'm not i'm not saying that it's not going to happen but yeah no i i absolutely think that it is a it is a thing that's going to come back later exactly like we were talking about with uh x-force and with the uh with the other books like it's so many things that, that yeah there's there's so many threads. I I keep wanting to like write them all down, mm-hmm. but I'm like, God, it's just so many. We've got some really big walls that you could definitely have some, you know, charts with yarn and and <laughs> things. You could go full conspiracy theory on the current X line. There's something to be said about what what a lot of people like in serial storytelling, and they like a long game. I don't understand how like this is so hard for people. Yeah, there's no, there's there's no faith in the long payoff anymore because people assume that there's going to be a creative change or an editorial change, and all of a sudden the book is going to go a completely new direction because that's what we had to deal with for so long. And it, it just made it difficult to really want to stick with a run because you mm-hmm. knew that it would just be a bunch of stories that would maybe maybe have like a small run run through going through the middle of it. Yeah, and I think. The frustration with the Maddie arc of Hellions is not that that payoff isn't coming. It's that there is a very strong movement. Well, I don't know if I want to call it a movement, but like there's a, there's 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 a lot of people who want to see that resolution for Maddie, who want to see that stuff addressed. And you know, when we're talking about long payoffs, we've basically been waiting for it since the late eighties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, very, the very longest payoff. Uh, so you know, I think pe- I think when that didn't come in the first few issues of Hellions, everyone was disappointed. And it's it's a very tricky balancing act to balance the the, the long payoff of the the overall narrative that Krakow is building regarding clones mm-hmm. against Maddie's personal story and the ways that she has been done wrong by male creators over the years. And that's fair. Right. Our next question comes from at Joshua F. Tribble, who says, 
Would the new mutants be able to beat the Beast's household, or would they have gone the way of Gaston's mob? And I believe this is talking this about is... Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Uh, not not Hank McCoy Beast's household. Yeah, it's important to clarify, because as we already know, uh, Jean Grey can toss Hank McCoy Beast around without trying. <laughs> uh, thanks to that absolutely beautiful X-Force issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so I I love that this ties into our, you know, this is a weird demonic Beauty and the Beast. Would the New Mutants have been able to take the Beast household? They're not very violent. They're not very violent, but but they're very, uh, they've got a lot of ingenuity when it comes to to getting out of scrapes. It's true. But I I think the answer is essentially the same as, uh, you know, how would the X-Men fare against the the daredevil vacuum cleaner depends on which ones yeah it depends on which ones like it it's it's just that's what it's going to come down to it's it's is it funny for them to lose to an appliance is it (laughs) is it dramatic for them to lose to an appliance like if there's a good story reason for this very silly thing to happen then it's gonna happen cogsworth just coming off the top row (laughs) (laughs) doing a frog splash on rain what would Cogsworth's like top rope move move be called? Is that like, is that time's up? <laughs> Both of the the hands hit midnight, and then oh yep yep I love it I love it. <laughs> Our last question comes from Big Dad Energy. What's the best Inferno tie-in? I didn't read a single power one. pack. <gasps> Did I you mean, read the power pack one? The power pack ones, yeah, it's good. Oh. Daredevil. Okay, I didn't read. I didn't read the Daredevil one, so I can't weigh in on that. But the the (laughs) vacuum does sound hilarious. Christy loves the power pack. I do. If you liked omnibuses, I would have gotten you a power pack omnibus. But I know that you would just be like, "This is a big book, and it is a lot, and I don't want it." Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I need to read power pack. I should really like. It's so cool because it's at least for a bit. It's Louise Simonson and June Brigman, and that's yeah, that's just good. Power Pack was like the first, like reading those was the first time I was like, oh, New York's real hot. Like they really hammer home. Like New York is like sweltering. It's an inferno right now. In the summer, there's it's so much concrete. No, I mean, it, 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 it's because of the demonic, demonic forces. Oh, I thought you just meant in the summer. Like, I'm like no, yeah, I think it gets no, hot it's, there. it's real bad. And like you get like that, that view into like civilian New York where there's like, Every, everything's gross coming out of the pipes and they're, they're, there's mold all over the bathrooms that they can't get rid of and the power pack kids are sick and they have to fight a bigot who becomes a demon because he runs into nastier and it's a lot of fun. The power pack. They whip the ever-living crap out of Sabretooth. It's and so funny. This is where their parents find out that they're they're the power pack. They're super powered. It's that like they, a super emotional thing where they're like you're our kids and we're always going to love you no matter what. Oh. See, the Power Pack parents are great. They're good parents and they but they have like all the most the worst stuff happen to them. Oh hey. gosh, yeah, it's awful. But there's the solution to Krakoa's like incarceration problem. Like they can end their own carceral state because oh. they can let Sabretooth out of the pit and just tell him like, "Hey, if you act up, we're going to call the Power Pack." <laughs> they will ki- they will whip you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we should move into accolades. I think we're we're starting to run a little long. Yeah, yeah, let's hit up some accolades.
let's start it off with our best line. Now, doing accolades with Nola, I'm like, Nola is always right. So, like, I feel like I want to make Nola go after me always. But maybe, <laughs> Nola, we do you, do you have a best line? I do have a best line. It's when Sinister is, is trying to mess with Jean. And she does this, like, mental transformation into, like, the Dark Phoenix for, like, a panel there. And she says, you lose, Sinister. This is my mind, my soul, my life. And I mean to keep them to myself. Ooh, that is good. Oh, man. See, this is why this is the only time where Nola gets to go first. Okay. (laughs) All right. You go next, Christy. My uh, best line was from Storm. And she has this this awesome, like, close-up face panel where she says, I am Storm. I lead the X-Men. That gives me the responsibility and the right. Oh, yeah. That is good. I just love that line. She looks awesome. Mine is also from Jean when Storm is asking her if she's really Jean. And Jean says what is now a kind of classic line. And she says, the only me that ever was. Oh, yeah. Oh, And that's what she says uh, during the Krakoan resurrection, right? Yeah, it's good. That was like when you read that, you're like, oh, Hickman's a big dork. (laughs) (laughs) In like a good way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it, it was great. Okay, our next one, greatest hero, was incredibly hard for me because I feel like we had like three, we had several huge conflicts and a lot of ground to cover in terms of who is the greatest hero in this issue. And to me, I always I like to define the greatest hero by who willingly sacrificed the most or who had the most to lose. So I'm going to give my greatest hero to Alex here who like, I mean, losing Maddie was a lot. Um, He also has that encounter with Polaris and Malice. um, Which is really rough. He has a really rough time, but also like ultimately in the encounter with Sinister, he's like, Hey, I'm going to really rile my brother up and like, supercharge him so he can defeat Sinister. So I feel like Alex lost the most, gained the least, and did some of the most noble things. So that's why I give him my greatest hero. So mine is going to go to the combination of Gene and Maddie. Mm-hmm. Because they kind of eventually came to an understanding and basically, like, concluded a lot of this, this the, 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 the tension, the turmoil, the conflict. Okay, I think that's fair. Like, and and even, like, after, like, Jean kind of consumes Maddie, Maddie still has, like, agency within Jean and makes the choice to kind of help them. Yes. That was, like, a very interesting interlude to me. It was very... Of it was Maddie really... still existing within Jean's head. Yeah. And I feel like that doesn't come up very much after this. Mm. All right, Nola, who do you think is the greatest hero? I think... It's kind of hard to to nail it down because this isn't really a story about heroes so much as it's a story about consequences. But I think I got to give it to Gene because given the the nature of the story and everything that's going on, when Gene and Maddie go at it, it is Gene chooses she chooses mercy, she chooses kindness, she chooses sympathy and empathy and to do those things in that situation against what you're facing is it's a hard choice to make. And it's, it's a choice that you have to really consider, you know, consciously. And so I, I think it's something that's yeah, really commendable. Noble. Good very. job, Jean. Mm-hmm. 
She did not ask for any of this. Yeah, she was both of our greatest hero picks last episode. True. And that was, like, she had done even less at that point. Well, she just had to keep track of this baby. And at one point she was even like, this is not my baby. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah, and, th- and that's the other thing. She, like, she has to take over as a parent, essentially. Just imagine if somebody cloned you mm-hmm. and your clone had a kid. And now that that's your kid. Now that's your kid. Yep. Then eventually you're going to have to go to the future and help raise that kid. <laughs> yep. All right. I'm going to, I want to say my coolest moment. Just oh, getting yeah. it out of the way. Lay that on me. Cyclops just vaporizing sinister and he just like turns into bones. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That is pretty great. Cause we, yeah, just, just seeing the skeleton, like just imagine the force of those, of those force beams just to strip the skin and guts and every. I don't. I don't know if that's how that would work, but it looks really cool. Well, there's no such thing as a force beam, so right. Like we have no like metric for which to judge that. Just imagine him doing like a <laughs> him. He punched Sinister with his eyes so hard that his skin came off. It's fine. Mm-hmm. His skin and his circulatory system yeah. and all of his organs. I punched you into bones. <laughs> he pulverized like all of Sinister's flesh. Yeah. Nola, what was your coolest moment? So. I try to limit myself to just the issues that we discussed here. Yeah, really have to narrow it down. Yeah. There's so much. I definitely, like, I have a, an overall favorite panel, but it's it's from the stuff before this. But for, for me here, it's the same thing. It's Cyclops Vaporizing Sinish. <gasps> it is. We've got a daily double. Hit it, Matty Wilson. <laughs> it is, it's not just a cool panel in its own right. It's the culmination of all of this stuff for Cyclops. Mm-hmm. And as a kid with a less than appealing childhood relationship with one of my parents, um, let's just say that I really appreciated the way that that resolved. I like it. I like it. So my coolest moment pick kind of ties into that whole, like, I don't ever understand any of like, the science-y stuff is go- that's going on. So I really like enjoy that. So my coolest moment is when... um what Bobby really like cools down nastier and then storm heats things up, which like overloads the circus in a way that I didn't understand that, that, that just that huge boom. I was like, that's really cool. I didn't know how that, that would be how things work. Is that not really how things work? Don't, I don't know who lied to me, but don't lie to me. (laughs) I mean, heat and then cold does, it does do stuff, but man, that was pretty explosive. The lettering on that panel where Nestier's like melting down and we get all these different weird fonts that become sort of drippy, I was like, I love the lettering on that. That's great. Was that in X Factor? No, that was in Uncanny, which means that was Tommy Orris, who's a consummate, consummate professional. Oh, good. I'm, it, it always, I always get nervous praising something in older comics. I'm like, is this somebody who's bad and we don't like? I don't know. I've I've not heard anything bad about Tom Warzakowski Yay. other than the fact that he is incredible because he could somehow get all of Claremont's words and <laughs> And I mean, you know, like you've you've got to make the divide. Like people, like there are a lot of comics creators who are not great, uh, as it turns out. But that that doesn't change the fact that they have a learned skill set. And you can critically evaluate that learned skill set separately from the other actions that that creator has undertaken. Fair, fair. But to to your to your point, I've never heard anything about Tom Orzakowski. Yay, because lettering, lettering very skills. good. <laughs> like it. 
<laughs> so next up, we have our Crusher Creole Award for Silly Villainy. And I had to give mine uh, to Malice and the interaction that she has with Colossus, where Colossus says to her, uh, stop it, you witch, because, you know, she's contorting him because he's, you know, made of... Is it steel or titanium? He is made... Uh, I don't know. A metal. So, obviously, Malice is having a lot of fun with him. And she tells him, smile when you call me that big guy. Yeah. And, and makes then, like, him, like, smile this goofy grin while his whole body's really contorted weird. And I just thought it was a whole bunch of fun. It was some silly villainy. Malice is, like, really scenery-chewy. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's great. So, Nola, who does your Crusher Creole award for silly villainy go to? For me, it is Nastier driving a demonic horse and carriage onto the scene in uh, 242. <laughs> it is so it, much. It is, like, there's no reason for him to be that extra, and he just he just goes for it. He's literally a horse and carriage. <laughs> and Havoc, like, barely grabs onto it at the end. Oh, God, it's so goofy. Yep. Chris, what about your Crusher Creole Award for Silly Villainy? Mine also goes to Nassier, but for a different thing, which is when he brags about getting superconductor powers from the cold. Oh. He's like, oh, it's so cold that I'm a superconductor now, you fools. (laughs) Right before they're like, hey, we're going to heat you up now and make you go boo. Uh, As as somebody with a tech background, I really love the way that comic books take uh, simple ideas like tech runs better when it's it's in a cool environment and just is like... (laughs) No, this that literally makes makes tech amazing. Okay, <laughs> that's Bobby encases them in in like liquid ice, which would not actually make these things amazing. <laughs> but sure, yeah. why not? We like the demons, the demons that go boom. <laughs> All right, Christy, tell me your key of C award. Okay, so Maddie's kind of like seduction of Dazzler Longshot and and um. Archangel, uh-huh. and this whole like you need to take center stage mm. motif, and like the attention, the spotlight's got to be on me. Oh. Needed to have a running theme, a, mm. a song like this seduction number just would have been a lot of fun. Just this whole like you know, come with me, join me, center stage. You know, take the spotlight. It just it would have been really sexy and a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna say mine real quick. Yes. Which is um I think that Alex taunting Cyclops while oh. supercharging him could have had a really good number. I mean that's a great moment. So yeah, like that bro- that brotherly exchange there at the end. Because mm-hmm. there's been so much tension building between them throughout all of this. That would have been a great culmination to that. Mm-hmm. Nola, what about your key of C? And readers, we didn't mention at the beginning, but our key of C is our accolade that we give to a moment that we think would be the most enhanced by a musical number. So mine's kind of tangentially related to both of yours, actually, in that I would like a musical number to accompany uh, Havoc's Magical Girl transformation into the Goblin Prince. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Isn't it just like his clothes getting progressively more ripped? Well, yeah, well, yeah, that and, you know, I mean, if you're going to put it on stage, it's going to be a lot of twirling, a lot of, a lot of spins. Um, and I, you know, I, I think you're going to get, you, you could do that really cool thing where like certain characters have like refrains that they revisit over the course of a musical. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Reprises. You could combine that with, with Maddie's song 
so that he gets his moments where he's like doing his thing while he's doing all of these twirls and spins and his costumes coming apart. And, and then he turns into the guy who taunts Cyclops. I love like the thought of like little demons taking bits of his costumes, the costume along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's good. What about the good hit? The goodest hit. The goodest hit. Is it really the goodest hit? And I'm just, okay. I need to update my doc. Yep. So I am. Um, this is for the the biggest the biggest right. whammo the best the best smash the biggest the biggest impact. Okay, Chris, tell me about your your biggest whammo. <laughs> Mine is when Colossus is falling off of the roof of the Empire State Building, and Iceman makes him like a side slide, and he like flings on yes. it and hits nasty. Yes, yes, we've got a daily double. Hey. Hit him, Matty Wilson again. <laughs> And I will never give Colossus any award, but the uh, I was like, this is this is fantastic. I yeah, loved it. Same, same page for me. All right, Nola, are you a dissenting opinion here? I am a dissenting opinion, um, okay. because I'm similarly of the opinion that Colossus deserves no award. <laughs> to be fair, he had no, he didn't really actually do anything. Iceman moved him. <laughs> he he fell fast in a cool way. <laughs> However, I will give an award at his expense. The goodest hit for me was Malice uh, just wrecking him in three panels. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. So the same the same section that I gave the silly villainy to is the goodest hit. I I agree. Yes. It's a great moment. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he comes at her in his full Colossus, like, fury, and, and three panels, she's... What did he think was going to happen? Yeah. This happens a lot with Colossus and Wolverine <laughs> and Magneto and Malice. Like, they're like, okay, but this time... <laughs> But until until Wolverine's adamantium got pulled, this is probably the worst iteration of it. Like, because yeah, Magneto would just be like, "Oh, I have a shield," or "Oh, I'm just gonna fling you away." And no, Malice like picked him up and was like twisting his body, and that's just, whew, I wince every time I see it. All right, I will go down with this ship, and so who, who we shipping? Who we shipping? Uh, Storm and Jean. Oh, me too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another Daily Double hit at Matthew Wilson. But, you know, Storm throughout this has had this whole revelation, like, that Gene is alive. But, like, I specifically picked the page where, um, like, Storm, like, catches Gene. is like, we wake up and, and, and speak to me in their encounter with, with Sinister. And she's just, like, cradling Gene. And Gene just looks up at her and goes, mm-hmm storm and it's i'm just like yeah yeah it works <laughs> and we'll go down with this ship yeah i, would, I felt the same way <laughs> nola what is what is your ship here it's a very good one honestly like i love alex and maddie together um mm-hmm. i love them as an example of a couple that and you know, like I'm, I'm twisting the logic here a little bit, but like I love them as, as an example of a couple that sees the flaws in each other, but accepts that person anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about Alex's agency in in choosing that life or choosing that that role with Maddie, and obviously that is not the most healthy representation of it. But at the same time, you know, relationships are work. And relationships mm-hmm. require accepting a person as they are, not as you want them to be. Right. Alex demonstrates both of those things. I think we're with you there. Weren't both of our... We had a daily double with Alex and Maddie for our ship. 
last episode, right? Yeah, because th- this was like the stuff where they went on the date and everything. Yeah, yeah. But like this, this whole event is great for them as a as a ship. Like, I mean, they got the, they got their problems. There, there's some well. some insurmountable issues, but like you can still hope for them. My other my other one is uh, Madeline Pryor and Agency. <laughs> Shipping those two, I love that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thank you, readers, for for sticking with us, and thank you, Nola, for joining us. Nola, if people want to find and follow you and your work on the internet, where should they go? So, what you're going to need is a lot of omnibuses, some salt, and a pentagram. <laughs> no, you can find me on Twitter at my first name, last name, Nola Fau, N O L A P F A U. You can find me at Women Write About Comics, writing about comics. And you can also find me on CXF doing the same thing. And uh, if you guys are looking for the podcast on Twitter or Facebook, we are at Chris's Pod. You can send us those longer form messages at Chris's on Infinite Earths at gmail.com. And if you want to uh, give us a shout out, give us a little boost over on iTunes uh, or review us wherever you get your podcast. We love to read out those five-star reviews here on the show, no matter how silly they may be. Maybe it's just going to be the opening stanzas from Jabberwocky, and we'd have to do our best. We would have to. We are required by podcasting law. Podcasting law. If you'd like to support us monetarily, uh, we have Kofi and Patreon links in the show notes. This episode, this series, was actually a Patreon request by one Zachary Jenkins, so thank you to him. Mm-hmm. In fact, our next crossover is yet another one of these Patreon choices. What is it? It's going to be the 2015 iteration of Secret Wars, which is my very favorite Marvel crossover and probably my second favorite crossover of all time. Gosh, readers, when he said that, like, I know he's told me this before, but I'm still like, no, we read that one. But no, we haven't read that one. We've not read that one. Not that one. It also has its own Inferno. It does have its own Inferno. What? We'll talk. What? Okay. But you can also, you can find Christy and I's work on Comics XF as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're writing right now. Yep. And until next time, readers, slay your enemies and all you desire shall be yours.